Welcome to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, also known as the Bitcoin Boomer. See the connection there? Welcome to season two of the Bitcoin Boomer Show. And oh my gosh, so much has happened since our last season. I know I said this last episode, but I'm probably going to say it every episode because so much has happened. Bitcoin, since the last season we had, went up to $60,000, over $60,000 twice. So basically, in the last 12 years, Bitcoin's gone from a nickel to over $60,000 twice, sitting at about $40,000 at the moment. The economy, oh my gosh, it's in shambles. How many trillions has the United States government printed in the last year? I don't even know the amount, but it's probably pretty close to the amount of money that had been printed in the previous 200 years. So things are going off the hook on the world economy. We're still at war. We're not at war. The world is at war in Ukraine. Russia attacking Ukraine. People are fleeing Ukraine. Many of them are cashing their savings, their life savings, into Bitcoin so they can leave the country and take their wealth with them. It's too bad that so many of them do not have Bitcoin and cannot easily do that as the Bitcoiners can do that. We have a new president, Joe Biden. President Joe Biden, he seems to enjoy spending money. Not that every other president before him has not enjoyed spending money. He just may seem to enjoy spending a little bit more. Now, maybe you're watching this show because you're a boomer. I'm a boomer, so you're a boomer maybe. And maybe being a boomer, you're not up to date and technology is not your thing. You didn't grow up with technology. But Bitcoin is a technology. That's all it is. It's code. It's simply code, computer code. Now, we're going to try to educate you, if you're a boomer, about Bitcoin. At least ways, when we get through with this season, maybe you can stand around a water cooler and talk a conversation and understand what people are saying. Maybe you're not a boomer. Maybe you are younger and you do understand technology, but you don't understand Bitcoin. Well, hopefully you can gain the same knowledge that anyone else can. Now, when we come back, we're going to have a good friend of mine, Jimmy Song, on the show. Jimmy has been in Bitcoin forever. He's a programmer. He's a professor. He's an author. He is very educated in Bitcoin, and we're going to ask him the questions that we think you want to know about Bitcoin. So stay tuned. Please come back after this episode for the Bitcoin Boomer Show. And also, don't forget to tell your friends about this show. We'll see you on the flip side. Okay, guys, this is Gary Leland, the Bitcoin Boomer, and you need to come here if you want to find out what Bitcoin is, if you want to just meet some great people and have a great time, come to BitBlock Boom. But it's one thing, you have to be a Bitcoiner. We don't allow shitcoiners. Last week in August, every year, moving to Austin for 2022. Yeah, I love coming to BitBlock Boom because it's like, it's like Mecca for Bitcoiners. Like, everybody here is like part of the hardcore like inner sanctum. Um, you just have these conversations with everybody where like, you can see it in their eyes that they believe the same things that you believe. If you come to BitBlock Boom once, you're gonna come every year. Speakers are great, the networking is great, because you know, that's really what it's about when you're a, a Bitcoiner, especially when you're a new Bitcoiner, is you wanna network with as many Bitcoiners as you can and learn, because there's so much information, not only about Bitcoin, but about money in general. Hey, so I'm down here at BitBlock Boom and what energy, what a lot of fun. It's all Bitcoiners. 
and uh, just good people. That's the one thing that, that all my interactions that I've had with people, you can tell you're just dealing with a culture of people that just want to make the world a better place. So if you want to come to a Bitcoiner conference, not a crypto conference or a shitcoiner conference, if you want to come to a Bitcoin conference, you would come to Bitblock Boom. But like I said, don't even mess with it. Don't even think about it. Don't even attempt to buy a ticket if you're a shitcoiner because your money's going to come back and you'll just make us both work. But if you're a Bitcoiner, you need to sign up and come to Austin now. Come to Bitblock Boom. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and I hope you took that time to tell everyone you know to watch this show. Just joking, but maybe in the future you can. Now, today we're going to bring on Jimmy Song as my guest, but before we do that, I do want to make sure you know about BitBlock Boom. Now, BitBlock Boom is the conference I host in Austin, Texas in August, long ways away. So take a look at bitblockboom.com. And you could actually meet our guests there in person with other Bitcoiners as well. So like I said, take a look at bitblockboom.com. Now, I take Bitcoin pretty serious. I think Bitcoin is a life-changing, world-changing event that's happening right before our eyes. And that is the reason I do this show, is I want to educate you about, Bit about Bitcoin so you don't miss out. Today's guest, Jimmy Song, is one of the leaders in the world on Bitcoin. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Gary. You know, Jimmy... I've never asked you this question. And so, you know, I don't know how many times we've talked, but I've never asked you, how did you find out about Bitcoin? What was your Bitcoin moment? I think I've asked everybody I've ever interviewed except for you this question. Well, uh, it's a good question. I, I learned about it in 2011. I was uh, reading a tech news site called Slashdot, and I saw a story that said something like online-only currency Bitcoin reaches dollar parity. And I didn't know anything about that story. So I went down the rabbit hole and, you know, I found out, you know, there wasn't that much information online at the time. This was 2011. Um, and I found out that it had a 21 million limit and almost immediately I wanted to go get some. So that that's sort of my rather droll way of getting into it. It wasn't like a complete revolution or anything like that or somebody talking me into it. It was just me seeing a headline on a website, getting curious and finding out more about it. Well, while you weren't the first person to get into Bitcoin, becoming aware of Bitcoin and getting involved in 2011 made you one of the early adapters of Bitcoin for sure. Um, mm -hmm. And so with the amount of time you've spent in the world of Bitcoin and the amount of knowledge you have in Bitcoin, the question for the day, and I ask everyone this simple question, in your thought patterns, in your way of talking, what is Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is better money, straight up. Uh, it's digital gold. It's um, uncensorable money. It's decentralized, digitally scarce money. And that's, that's something that's a little bit of a mouthful, but all of those words mean something. It's decentralized like gold in the sense that you don't need anyone's permission to go and get it or trade it or anything else. Uh, with the dollar, that's not the case where it is centrally controlled. And if you want to uh, 
um, you know, spend money, uh, you know, uh, that's at your bank or with a credit card or something like that, you need the approval of the central processor, a trusted third party. Uh, that's not the case with Bitcoin. It's, but it's also scarce, um, and that's uh, that's a very strong property. Nothing in the world has it uh, the scarcity property of Bitcoin in that it has a very strict 21 million limit. Um, everything else, including gold, continues to expand in supply. Uh, any, anything that's desirable in the world, uh, more of it gets made because there's demand for it. Um, you can't do that with Bitcoin, and that's enforced by rules, and therefore it's an amazing money. It's It stores value better than anything that we've ever seen. Um, one way to look at it is digital gold uh, for that reason. It has all the convenience of digital things, uh, but the decentralized scarcity of gold. Um, and that's that's uh, that that gives it some amazing properties, including uncensorability. Well, now you say it's a limited supply of 21 million, but why can't someone make more Bitcoin? Why couldn't someone decide tomorrow? Someone's doing something with somewhere with Bitcoin. Someone's working on it. There are coders involved with it. Why couldn't they decide to make 22 million Bitcoin? Why is that 21 million so hard of a cap, I guess? Yeah, so the reason why is because it's a decentralized network. Essentially, everyone that is running what's called a full node uh, is checking the entire ledger on a constant basis. So if you think about Bitcoin and, you know, we, uh, the word blockchain is thrown around, but really all it is is it's it's a giant ledger of every transaction that's ever happened on Bitcoin. And the software that you run essentially checks that ledger to make sure it follows all of the rules. And one of the rules is there can't be any more than 21 million Bitcoin ever. So everybody is running this software and you don't have to upgrade to a different version if you don't want to. Um, if, for example, some coders decided, hey, instead of 21 million, let's make it 22 million. Well, they would have to distribute that uh, software to everybody else. And you can't make people upgrade their software if they don't want to. Uh, and therefore, uh, the, the people that are already running the software, they have some say over the network. In fact, it's the users that determine what Bitcoin is. And as a result, uh, the 21 million limit is is enforced by all of those people that are running that software. So if it suddenly went to 22 million, you would know right away. And at that point, you would reject uh, the pages, new pages in the ledger that come in and say, that's not Bitcoin, that's something else. It's, a, it's, it's some uh, alt alternative or something like that, in which case, the 22 million limit doesn't go through. So essentially, everybody is participating in um, the governance of Bitcoin, and that's the beauty of it. That's what keeps it decentralized. So uh, it's a ledger sheet, just like we're used to banks running ledger sheets, mm -hmm. but instead of there being a main party or a person who's keeping the ledger sheet, a private person that could make changes in the ledger sheet, this is a decentralized ledger sheet kept on millions of computers around the world that could not be altered because you can't get enough computers to change over to any new alterations. That's correct. Uh, if, if you are running your own node, if you are running software, no one can make you go change it. And that's the key is that you are running your own software versus uh, all, the, uh, all the other nodes. And 
you are auditing everything yourself. It's, uh, you know, we can't audit the Fed, for example, for how many dollars they're printing or whatever. Uh, but we can audit Bitcoin and everyone does on a continuous basis. And that's what makes it decentralized. And that's what keeps all of these rules in place. Uh, to change them is very, very difficult and essentially requires the agreement of everybody that's running a node. So that's that's a lot. Uh, and as we all know, in anything that requires sort of consensus, it's e extremely difficult to change. And uh, you know, something like the 21 million limit will probably never change for that reason. Now, as you know, this show is a show for beginners being titled the Bitcoin Boomer Show. Uh, mm. I would say most boomers are beginners. We only have two minutes less than this segment. But one thing you've said several times that I think my audience may have a little uh, problem understanding. Could you just explain what a node is? You've mentioned that a couple mm. of times, and I think that may be a little something beyond their grasp. Sure. Uh, being a node is essentially running software to check everything uh, in the in in the ledger, basically. Uh, and that's uh, that's uh, think of yourself as an auditor. Uh, and there are millions of auditors around the world that are checking this ledger. If you are one of those auditors, then you have some power to. Um, determine what the, what any changes might be. And that's what being a node means. Um, if you think about a network, a network is really in mathematics like a graph. You got nodes and edges. That's, that's where the term comes from. And they're all connected to each other. So we have this giant internet of, uh, uh, of servers and clients and so on. In Bitcoin, it's, it's a bunch of uh, uh, people running software and they are connected to each other and check uh, the ledger that they have and make sure that it's uh, to make sure that it follows all of the rules. That, that's what being a node means. So how many nodes or computers would you say are on the Bitcoin network? I've been told it's the world's largest computer network, but does anyone have an idea of how many computers are running this? Well, we don't really know. The ones that are public number around 50,000, uh, but there's a lot of private nodes that are sort of hidden uh, and not necessarily connected to, uh, available to be connected to. Um, so it, it could easily be a million. We don't really know, um, but, you know, uh, that that's kind of the beauty of it is that, uh, you know, there's no central repository where you can go and ask, hey, does anyone know where all of them are? Because at that point, um, you know, they could get attacked or something. So a lot of uh, people run their nodes or run their software behind sort of uh, firewalls and protection and so on. I got to go to a hard cat, but we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hello and welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, the Bitcoin Boomer. Gary Leland's my name. Today I'm joined by Jimmy Song, longtime Bitcoiner. I guess we could say an OG Bitcoiner, Jimmy. But uh, one of the other questions I have people ask me all the time, I always hear, I'm asking questions, all my questions are questions I hear all the time, though, <laughs> um, is why wouldn't the United States make Bitcoin illegal? You know, it's a mm -hmm. it's a currency that's a competitor. Uh, you know, they made gold. They said that couldn't be currency and took all the gold away from us back in the early 1900s. Why wouldn't that happen with Bitcoin? Why wouldn't they say this is illegal? You can't operate in Bitcoin. 
Well, they can certainly try. They, they've tried to make lots of things illegal, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people won't get around it. Um, there was, for example, prohibition where they said, you're not allowed to drink alcohol. And that, of course, didn't work. And they had to reverse that amendment and so on. Um, making something illegal uh, is an option. Uh, let's, uh, let's just make that clear. The U.S. government could say something like um, it is illegal to own Bitcoin. But it's kind of self-defeating. If they do try that, it's going to be extremely difficult to enforce. At least with gold, most of the gold was in bank vaults. So it was fairly easy for the U.S. government to just go to the banks and take all the gold, um, which which they did in 1933. Um, but with Bitcoin, there's no central repository. Every person uh, that has Bitcoin has it on uh, on a, a in their uh, software wallet or hardware wallet or uh, some sort of Bitcoin wallet. And that means that they'd have to go knock down everyone's doors. Um, it, it's kind of like asking, well, why don't they make, uh, what, can't they just make guns illegal? Yes, they can. But it's going to be very difficult to actually go and confiscate your guns. Um, and I suspect that that's, that's uh, going to be the sim- uh, a very similar case with Bitcoin. And I guess when you get down to when they made gold illegal, back in the early 1900s, people were told, as you said, they they went to the banks and took everybody's gold that was in the banks, but they also told people they could only own a limited amount of gold coins for their personal use, and they had to turn in the rest. And in that time period in American history, I think people were listened to the government and trusted the government much more, and they all, well, not all, but most of them went in and turned in their gold. And they kept the four or five ounces they were allowed to keep, and they went in and just turned in their gold. I don't see that happening in Bitcoin in today's society, that they made Bitcoin illegal, that everybody would go, oh, let me just send my thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars into the government because they told me I had to. Yeah, that would be a very... um unlikely thing to actually happen. Uh, at, at the time that the you know, executive order 6102 went out, a lot of the gold, as you said, was in the bank vault. So it was fairly easy. And there were people that turned it in, but there were also a lot of people that completely refused. And there wasn't an easy way for the government to determine, oh, you actually have excess gold. Um, they did knock down some houses and do search, uh, you know, thorough searches of the house and so on. But that was relatively rare. Um, You know, to do that would be very, very expensive for, you know, government officials to visit every house to see if there's possibly Bitcoin. And that will just cause more people to hide it better, essentially. Um, And the nice thing about Bitcoin is that it is much easier to hide than gold. With gold, it has a physical location. So um, if they've manage to know where where that physical location is, they'll, they'll be able to take it. With Bitcoin, it doesn't have to have a physical location. It could be in your brain for, for all they know. And that makes it very difficult for them to go and seize it or know that you even have it. So all of those things mean that it's going to be extremely difficult for the government to make it illegal and enforce it uh, one way or the other. I think most people would be able to get around it, which is why I don't think it'll happen. It's kind of like the whole guns thing. If uh, to enforce, uh, you know, the illegality of guns and actually seizing guns from every citizen would take would be very, very difficult for any um, 
any government, and therefore that's not something that they're going to do. Well, another, I'm going to say, FUD that I hear about all the time is the fact that Bitcoin is mainly used by criminals. And anyone who's involved in Bitcoin knows this is not true, but why is that not true? Why is that one of the craziest things to worry about? Yeah, uh, first of all, it's much easier to use the traditional financial system. I believe Barclays has uh, has laundered way more money for drug dealers and so on. So it, it, it there, there are many more uh, alternatives uh, than, than Bitcoin. Um, the thing about Bitcoin that makes it difficult for criminal use is that you have a blockchain, you have a public ledger. And in fact, a lot of arrests have happened just because there's uh, this whole ledger that you can go and follow and figure out, okay, this person did this and so on. Um, and there's usually an online trail associated with that. Um, this is how people like Ross Ulbrich were arrested. Uh, they they left a, uh, a digital fingerprint of what's going on and investigators were able to go and use that to go arrest these people. Uh, but yeah, more more than that, uh, the sensationalistic sort of news uh, is based on, you know, what if it bleeds, it leads. So those get the most attention. But if you look at the actual statistics, it's a tiny percent of a percent that actually, uh, you know, of all transactions in Bitcoin are actually used by criminals. So you're saying cash is easier for criminals to use than Bitcoin and has a lot less features built into it to help track it than Bitcoin does since it's a computer network. Yes, that's correct. You can totally use, uh, you know, a lot of what's in Bitcoin to uh, to track a lot of people. And, you know, cash is a lot harder and it can be, um, you know, it, it's used all the time by criminals, but nobody thinks about cash. It's, hey, why don't we just ban cash because lots of criminals are using it. Um, you know, they, they tried that in India uh, because they thought 500 rupee notes were being used by criminals. It actually caused economic chaos. So I, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, you know, now in the United States, we used to have thousand dollar bills and now mm -hmm. hundreds are the biggest we have. But, you know, a hundred really is like ten dollars. Maybe when <laughs> I was a kid, I mean, what, you can't really spend uh, buy anything of any sizable amount with less than a hundred dollars. So why are, have we not gone to a larger bill or why did we go from a thousand to a hundred? Have you have any thoughts on that? It just popped into my mind. Yeah, uh, I, I think it, it is to sort of uh, curb, um, you know, the ability to transact peer to peer. Uh, the government likes being able to surveil us. And uh, essentially, if we're using, um, you know, credit cards or bank transfers or things like that, there, there are ways to look at your purchase history of a lot of stuff. Um, they like that data being out there so that they can use it to kind of figure out what you're doing. Um, and that's unfortunately uh, the thing that a lot of governments do. You can, you can see what's going on in China, for example. They're more or less eliminating cash at this point, and they have this thing called the social credit score. Uh, you know, they, they want to track everything that's going on um, so that if you're, you know, part of the Uyghur minority, you might not ever get to you know, leave the province that you're in. You can't even buy train tickets or anything to get out. 
and they can keep track of you to, you know, uh, maybe arrest you and send you to a concentration camp. So it, it's kind of an Orwellian nightmare kind of coming true as cash is being eliminated. But I suspect that the larger denomination bills are, you know, that that's a way to sort of reduce the effectiveness of cash uh, for that purpose. But yeah, it's it's all a part of that thing that we've been talking about. They want to track uh, certain things and that's, this is how they do it. So someday, maybe in sooner than we had originally thought, you may go in to buy a loaf of bread and it may cost you five $100 bills. <laughs> uh, which would be very inconvenient. And this is uh, in any sort of like hyperinflating economy. It's, uh, it's funny if you study some of them. The, there's literally money printers, right? People that are printing new bills all the time and they're constantly working. In the Weimar Republic, um, which was a hyperinflating uh, economy uh, in Germany, they, they the, like the well, Jimmy, I'm money gonna have printers to, went up. We're going to have to huh? continue that when we come back in just a second, Jimmy. We got a hard okay. cap here. But we'll be right back after this word. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm Gary Leland, and we're having a great conversation with my friend Jimmy Song. Jimmy, I'm sorry I had to uh, be so rude and interrupt you while you were talking about the Weimar Republic uh, and the money printing, and that's a really interesting story. Could we continue there? Yeah, sure. So during the Weimar Republic, it was a hyperinflating economy, and uh, there was literally the job of people that had to print new bills constantly because the old bills were getting... Uh, too uh, worthless uh, to use in the economy. And there's a story of how they, when they went on strike, uh, they settled almost immediately because they needed that money printing was so essential to everybody being able to even do commerce. So, um, it, you know, larger bills are inevitable if you're, if at some point five $100 bills are needed to buy a loaf of bread. Um, if that happens, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. So, but in the Weimar Republic, I mean, that blew up overnight, didn't it? I mean, they went to kind of like, let's move from there to Venezuela, let's say. You know, how their money blew up. The story is the lady's walking down the street with her wheelbarrow full of money to buy a loaf of bread or a can of coffee or something. And the reporter says, aren't you scared someone's going to steal all your money? And the lady replies, no, I'm scared they're going to steal my wheelbarrow and how will I tote my money around? I mean, when, when this happens, like in Venezuela and like in the Weimar Republic, it happens quickly. It's not like, of course, you see signs of it coming, but for the average person, it seems to have fallen apart overnight. Yeah, and in the Weimar Republic, it, it was like uh, it took a decade for, uh, you know, prices to double and then... It took another two years for prices to double again. And then it took like two months. It, it went really, really fast towards the end there. Uh, but the pattern was there for a long time. It was uh, like, it took 15 years, but it seemed to happen overnight. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing in the US is that we're, we're still in that sort of slow phase, but it's starting to accelerate. And when it accelerates, it goes really, really quickly. Um, 
right now we're seeing inflation at you know at least the official numbers are around eight percent. I'm sure the official numbers will be in the double digits in the next year or two. Uh, the amount of money being uh, created is just an, just insane. I think um, the te- uh, the treasuries there's like eight hundred fifty billion in the last three months that. Uh, that have been introduced to the public and rates are rising as a result. Uh, so we're, we're going to see this um, sort of trickle into all sectors of the economy. And there's sort of a flywheel effect where if you print more money and people start anticipating it for their purchasing decisions, then even more money has to be printed to pay for all that. So um, and then people anticipate even more. And that that's when you get hyperinflation, when people want more, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of planning for that inflation. And, you know, like there's sort of a cat and mouse game going on between the government and the people. Well, the Fed just raised the interest rates 25 basis points and announced they mm-hmm. may five or six times over the next year raise it 50 basis points. Now, when they raise the interest rates, on the United States, so when the Fed raises the interest rate, doesn't that cause a chain reaction of actual money printing? Because now mm-hmm. the money that we borrowed is gonna go up, the interest payments we make on them, the amount of money people receive on Social Security, their yearly raises, uh, adjustments for cost of inflation, doesn't that go up? Doesn't all these things, don't all these things go up because they raise the price of, infl- of interest and that causes more money printing, which keeps the cycle going? Well, so raising interest rates actually slows down the money printing. Uh, it's, it's lowering the interest rates that increases more money printing because all U.S. dollars are essentially debt. Uh, they come into existence through loans. Uh, so by raising interest rates, they're trying to signal to the market, hey, like we're going to raise interest rates and allow um, you know the market to get a little more rational. The problem is that when you raise interest rates, uh, every the co- uh, in, you know all all the interest rates go up. If the Fed raises interest rates, your mortgage rates go up, and other loan rates go up, and everything else. So the cost of capital goes up, and that means that uh, you know people are more incentivized to hold on to cash. Unfortunately, uh, you know, that means that, you know, the U.S. has uh, will now have to pay back more money than in, in interest payments for their debt, um, as does everybody else. So it becomes sort of unaffordable. And especially for people that are, um, you know, doing, uh, you know, a lot of uh go bankrupt and stuff. So we'll probably see more of that going forward. Well, uh, we got four minutes left, and this is going to be a hard one for you to answer in four minutes, Jimmy. But uh, if anyone can do it, it's you. I keep seeing over and over how Bitcoin is destroying the world because of energy consumption. Mm. Uh, Can you tell me why it's not destroying the world because of energy consumption in four minutes or less? Sure. Uh, the people that say that think that energy is the same everywhere, and it, it's just not. Um, you know, they'll say stuff like it, Bitcoin uses more energy than the country of Denmark or something. Well, the energy that powers a dishwasher in Denmark is not the same energy that, 
a miner in Nevada is using. Um, the energy that is being used by Bitcoin miners is excess energy that would otherwise go wasted. That tends to be the cheapest energy. And they they move the mining facilities and the, all of the energy consumption towards those places where the energy is extremely cheap. So really you're um, incentivizing more energy production uh, and allowing energy to uh, production facilities to make more profit uh, and you know cheapening it for everybody else through that extra capacity and so on. Uh, so for example, here in Texas, we have a lot more energy production as a result of Bitcoin mining, and that stabilizes the grid. So we don't have stuff like uh, the um, you know the big freeze that happened in February of 2021, and that that's that's a very good thing. Uh, and instead of sort of like killing the world or something like that, that's a very um, coarse view of how the energy market actually works and how, what Bitcoin mining actually does for everybody. Uh, and, you know, all this moralizing about, hey, we shouldn't use Bitcoin that way. Well, who, who are you to say that? Um, if, if you really want to reduce energy consumption, there's a much better thing that you can be doing, which is stop using your dryer. You don't, you don't need to use your dryer. You can air dry everything. Dryers use way more energy than Bitcoin ever did. So if you're going to complain about, uh, you know, Bitcoin energy use, uh, talk to me about it after you uh, stop using your dryer. <laughs> that's, that's a good comparison, which I've not heard yet. But the fact that Bitcoin miners are using and keeping, uh, using excess electricity, what you just talked about a minute ago, uh, the fact that if we have an ice storm like we did last year, or was it the year before? It was, it was the biggest ice storm I think I've witnessed. They can cut off those machines among minutes of getting notice and then reroute that electricity, but they're basically keeping the grid up, keeping a lot of power running that can be diverted for emergencies, right? That's correct. And that's uh, uh, one of the functions that... Bitcoin mining facilities have is that they can adjust the demand. And there are very few things in the economy uh, that have this property of being able to suck in energy at any time, but also give it back as the grid needs it. And that's they essentially act a little bit like batteries or something where, uh, you know, they, they'll use the electricity uh, when no one else is using it, but they can give it back whenever they or they can let the rest of the grid have it when there's a lot of demand. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, Texas miners actually made quite a bit of money that way, uh, selling back the energy that they had contracts for. Well, Jimmy, when we're going to take a break in a minute. But when we come back, we're going to talk about Bitcoin and the American dream. Jimmy Song is the leader of that project, which I was so lucky to be involved with. But it was a book sprint where we all wrote a book, eight of us, in nine days. Or quicker than that, Jimmy, six days, I think. So when we come back. Four, four days. Four days. <laughs> quicker than I thought. We'll talk about that right after this message. Stick with us. And welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland. And today we're joined by Jimmy Song and we've had a great conversation. Before we get on to that, I do wanna remind you to share this show with your friends. Everybody needs to know about the growing 
usage and where Bitcoin's headed. So make sure and share this with your friends. Jimmy, welcome back to the show. And again, thank you for joining me today. And yeah, how could I think this book lasts, in, it must have seemed like nine days uh, being recorded <laughs> up there in Austin, but it was four days. You're right, it was four days. But to, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, Jimmy Song was the leader on a book that we wrote called Bitcoin and the American Dream. Put it all together. He got eight of us together for four days in Austin, and we wrote a book in four days. As one of the co-writers, Pete Rizzo, said, it's taken him longer than that to write blog articles. But we did a whole book in that time period. Jimmy, let's let's talk about this book. I don't think everybody's going to be that interested about our living conditions for four days. But let's talk (laughs) about the purpose of this book, why the book was written, what the book is for. And you just start with this however you want, Jimmy. Sure. Uh, we, we wrote the book uh, because there's a real need in Congress, in, uh, among policymakers, to understand Bitcoin. They, uh, a lot of them were very confused by it. And when uh, a Bitcoin provision was put into the infrastructure bill in the summer of 2021, a lot of them got like a, a bunch of phone calls and stuff like that. And they, they were all kind of scared. They're like, who are these people? What do they want? And why are they calling our office? Uh, and they realized that they didn't really have a very good idea of their electorate. And we wanted to write a book so that um, you know policymakers could understand Bitcoin a lot better. So that that's what we did with Bitcoin and the American Dream. So the idea behind this book is that we would give them a good idea of who Bitcoiners are, what they want, and what uh, you know, what the significance of Bitcoin is for uh, for the world and so on. Um, and, you know, a lot of the facts that, that we present in the book are not completely intuitive, right? Uh, so, for example, more black people on a per capita basis own Bitcoin than white people. Um, and that's that's not something that most people in Congress know. And that's something that we point out in the book to say, hey, you know, you, you think it's a bunch of you know, white male coders in their 20s or something like that. And that's certainly a part of it. But there's a lot of other constituencies that are getting into Bitcoin and have gotten into Bitcoin for a lot of different reasons, including boomers like you, Gary, and maybe a a large part of your audience. Well, you know, one of the chapters of the uh, book was the uh, Bitcoin voter, I think Mm -hmm. was the chapter of the book. Let's go over that Bitcoin voter a little bit, which you just addressed, Mm -hmm. but... Um, how do you think that's affecting laws being made or laws that will be made? I see more people running now for Senate and Congress, state level, national labor that are posting on Twitter, they like Bitcoin. So we already see a little bit of it. Could you go into that? Yeah, so there's a lot of different constituencies. Um, Certainly you have uh, the you know, young white men, I guess, that, that are libertarian or something like that. But that's that's not it. Uh, that's not the only people. Uh, you, you have a lot of blue collar workers that are distrustful of inflation that have gotten into Bitcoin. You also have a lot of small business owners uh, and entrepreneurs that are into Bitcoin because they want to they need a savings vehicle and to run their business. Um, you have a lot of uh, black people, a lot of Hispanic people that are getting into it because historically they've the government's taken away their stuff and they they want to keep their property. Um, you have a lot of people that are on the younger side of the spectrum that are that are getting into it because they're very 
uh, digitally native, and they they kind of get that aspect of it. Um, you also have a lot of military veterans who have seen sort of like the horrors of war and all the money that gets wasted in war, um, and and see Bitcoin as sort of like this alternative to a warfare state. Um, and of course, you have like baby boomers, uh, a lot of people that are you know thinking about what's uh, what's going to happen in the future and thinking about retirement and things like that. That uh, that that need to uh, need this in order to uh, you know like prepare for uh, their later years in life. So, it, it, you know, giving this perspective was very important to uh, to sort of set the t- stage for the rest of the book uh, because so many people don't un- uh, you know like have the wrong impression of. Who the Bitcoin voters are? It's a, it's a much larger group, first of all, than people think. It's uh, something like 23 million people, uh, something like that, have some exposure to Bitcoin in the United States. Um, you know that, that that's like compared that to something like AARP with 40 million members. It's a, it's it's not that far away. And AARP, of course, is one of the biggest lobbying groups. So, um, you know, pointing this out is a good way to get. A lot of people in Congress to actually listen to us because, like you said, there are lots of candidates that are saying very good things about Bitcoin. Uh, but you know, as as Bitcoin voters, we we need to sort of uh, test them on that. It's easy to say good things. We need to know what their actual policies are. It's kind of, kind of at this point, it's saying like good things about schools or something. Uh, well, I I need to show me your policy. Don't you know, just say good things. <laughs> exactly. You know, and one of the things that I found more enlightening during this time period, we were together in close quarters for a long time, was generational wealth. The opportunity Bitcoin causes are create to create generational wealth and how some people have been left out of the opportunity to have generational wealth. I found that very enlightening. Um, can we talk about generational wealth? Yeah, and this is something that I think uh, Charlene and Lamar, um, were the two black people that wrote, wrote the book with us, pointed out, which is that, you know, for a long time for black Americans, uh, you know, especially post-slavery, uh, you know, they, they had their property just straight up taken from them by the government. They, these were Jim Crow laws uh, and many other things, which were highly unfair. And they, they just sort of took their property and reallocated it to white people or the government or something like that. Uh, so there, there's a natural distrust uh, by uh, people of color towards the government for that reason. There, there's a history there of, uh, of the government sort of taking away their stuff. And it shows up in sort of the generational wealth statistics. So one, one of the things we point out in chapter four is how White families, when they leave money for their kids, it, it ends up being something like $180,000 on average. Uh, for black families, it's much less. It's like $20,000. And this is the real legacy of slavery is that you have much less that you are able to transfer from generation to generation. And it, it, it means that there are fewer opportunities just because you have less money. So uh, by having something like Bitcoin, um, it allows these communities to actually, okay, we're not, we're not going to trust government anymore because uh, they might continue to take our stuff and uh, you know, use this to actually hand down generational wealth. Well, 
I do want to recommend anyone and everyone to go to BitcoinAndTheAmericanDream.com and buy yourself a copy. I would say this is an hour, two-hour read. You can read it on a flight for sure. And it's a great uh, primer as to what Bitcoin is, where it's going, what it can do. And there's so much information in here that it's mind-boggling. Jimmy, before we go, um, where can people follow you or find out more about you or keep up with you? Well, uh, my Twitter handle is Jimmy Song. I also have a website, programmingbitcoin.com. That's the title of my first book. Uh, and, and I publish a bunch of essays and things like that there. Um, you can also sign up for my newsletter there and so on. Um, but yeah, that, that's where you can find me, uh, programmingbitcoin.com and at Jimmy Song on Twitter. Well, Jimmy, I appreciate you coming on. And speaking of Lamar, he's next week's guest. <laughs> so uh, we'll have to go into the uh, generational wealth from his angle, because that was eye-opening to me, how uh, blacks had been affected by generational wealth theft. And one of the big things in the book we had a problem with was the title, as the whether it should be the new American dream or the American dream, because as Charlene and Lamar said, they never had an American dream. But Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I do appreciate it. And I want to make sure you know again how much I appreciate you letting me be involved with your project. Well, thank you for having me. And I hope your audience gets something out of this. And we'll be right back after this word. And welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. This is your host, Gary Leland, and I hope you've enjoyed today's show. You know, we're trying to bring on some of the best minds, or at least ways the best minds I know in Bitcoin. But our second week and our second episode of the season, and both of them have been with people who've been involved into Bitcoin since it was like one year old. So we're bringing people on the show to educate you that have been involved in the space a long time, not people who just got involved a year ago and now are authorities, but people who don't claim to be authorities, but are authorities. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. I do want to remind you again about my conference in August, Bit Block Boom. That's in Austin, Texas. So if you have time, please check out that website, bitblockboom.com. Also, if you happen to live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area or in the state of Texas, or Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana. Think about coming to my once a month meetup in Dallas, Texas, which is BitBlock Barbecue. Go to bitblockbarbecue.com to see what I'm talking about there. And next week, we'll have Lamar Wilson on. Lamar was another co-author on our book, along with Jimmy. And Lamar has a whole different aspect on Bitcoin than Jimmy does. But they believe in one thing that's for sure, Bitcoin is the future. I do ask that you share this show with your friends, tell your friends about this show, and let's help increase this audience right away. Now, if you do have any questions you'd like me to cover for you, please send those questions to GaryLeland at, at gmail.com. Sorry about that. GaryLeland at gmail.com. Send me any questions, and I will try to include those questions on the show. Now, as I said earlier, I truly believe the future of the economy is Bitcoin. It's a world currency which will be adopted. I'm not saying it's going to take the place of the U.S. currency, but I do believe it will be alongside the U.S. currency. It's a store of value. 
It's a currency that you can spend. It is so much more, creating jobs, creating political divides. It's changing the entire world, and I believe for the better, and I wanna make sure you know about Bitcoin. That's my only goal, is to make sure you know about Bitcoin. I don't have any Bitcoin to sell you. I'm not selling Bitcoin. I'm giving away education, and you make up the decision if Bitcoin is something you're interested in. Again, thank you for coming on the show, being with me, sharing this information, allowing me to share this information. And I'll see you next week right here. Thank you.